please turn in your Old Testament to Judges chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, as we continue in our series through the book of Judges, living by faith in an unsteady world. And it, this, our world today feels unsteady in a lot of ways, so there's just so much that we can learn from this book of Judges as we move into this, this account of Deborah and Barak in Judges 4, 1 through 10. And this is the very words of God to you and to me. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagioim. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. For Jabin and Sisera had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lipidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kadesh Naphtali. And she said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Barak, go and gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I surely will go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going now will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels. And Deborah went up with him. So I want to start with a question for you to think about this morning. It's probably a question we need to ask ourselves every single week. And maybe we'll get a little understanding from this text. I'll get a little way to grab a hold of, of what the answer really is to this question. And the question simply is, how much do you need God in your life? How much do you functionally rely on God? How much do you need God? So we, we come into Judges chapter 4 and Israel is enslaved to another Canaanite power. By the way, a Canaanite power that would not have been there, would not have regrouped, would not have been able to rebuild a capital to build an army had they just obeyed the Lord when they went into the land and God said, drive the people who serve other gods out of the land. They left them in the land. In fact, 
They disobeyed God. They made slaves out of these people who turned the tables on them. So it's a, it's a tangled little mess that wouldn't have had to happen. But what happened was awful. It was awful. You see, now the people who turned from Yahweh, the God of Abraham, turned away from him and turned to other gods became those people who did evil in the sight of the Lord, meaning they worshipped other gods and they lived their lives according to the values of those animistic spirit religions that the other gods represented. And now they see their need for the Lord again only because they're enslaved by the people that they once themselves had enslaved. And, and Jabin, the king of the Canaanites, when we come into this account, has oppressed the people of Israel for 20 years. Now, I know in history, 20 years isn't a long time, but you know, in your life, 20 years is a long time. And to be enslaved and oppressed for 20 years is a long time. And Jabin was brutal. He was brutal. We learn mainly from Judges chapter 5 and what's called the Song of Deborah. The entire next chapter is just her composing and singing a song about chapter 4. We learn a lot of details. We learn that, that Jabin, through his commander Sisera, shut down all the main roads and would not allow Israel to have any trade with anybody. And so they were starving. They were having, we read in her song, they were having to go, you know, sneak around in the back roads to, to get to where they were going. And we read in verse 30 of, of chapter 5 that they, they were free to rape as many Israelite women as they wanted to. And this was going on for, for 20 years. And uh, they had built... Jabin had built a huge army with 900 armed chariots. That is an armada of the most sophisticated military hardware available at that time. I, I said last week, that's one of those is, is equal in today's battlefield to one of these high-tech M1 Abrams tanks that we have when, when we go into battle and nothing can stand up to American technology in the battlefield, on the ground, or in the air, or on the sea. They were that, I mean, it, it wasn't even close. Canaanites were a superpower compared to farmers. And, and we, 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 we kind of learned this even more. I'll, I'll describe it in a moment. Now, this is going to be a little counterintuitive for you as we kind of think about this question, how much we trust God and you know, how much we need God. But this is kind of counterintuitive. But, you know, seemingly the only thing worse for Israel in this text, other than slavery, you ready for this? Was success. I want you to hear what I just said. Seemingly and spiritually for sure, the only thing worse than slavery for Israel was success. So why is it? Why is it that when there's peace in the land, followed by prosperity, which is a gift from God to them, why is it that when there's success, when there's peace, that's when they, they start turning away to other gods. And, and when they're enslaved, that's when they turn back to God. I think we know the answer to this question. 
I think we do this in our hearts. We're just like this. I mean, when things are going our way, we tend to move ourselves into the main driver's seat of our lives. We tend to want to kind of make our own lives and just throw a little Christianity on top of that. Just kind of baptize our will. No longer really under the authority of God's word. No longer under the authority of the kingship of God and our submission to his good and gracious loving reign. Not only over all, but over, over us. I think it's very easy to follow the gods of money, power, and pleasure. And to simply build our lives on, on having more or controlling these things in our lives. And, and when money, power, and pleasure begins to drive your choices, it hurts your heart, hurts our hearts, hurts the hearts of the people around us, hurts our families. If enough people are participating, it begins to break down um, the society around. So maybe a bigger question isn't just why do God's people wander from him when they're in a time of peace and plenty? Maybe a bigger question is why is God still committed to these people? This is the cycle of the judges. This thing's going to happen 15 times in the 350-year history of when the judges ruled. Why does Yahweh, why is he still committed to his people? And, and we see in our text that he is. And, and behind it all, Yahweh loves his people. Even as they have wandered away from him and, and he's going to bring them back. Look, aren't you glad that God is not like us? We're so doggone punitive. If we were Yahweh, we long time ago we said enough of these people. Three strikes and you're out. We're not putting up, not putting up with that anymore. Aren't you glad God is not like that? God, this, this God who is slow to anger, this God of long-suffering patience, this God, are you ready for this, who has made promises to us, I will be your God and the God of your descendants after you for the generations to come. That is music to sinners like us who get in the driver's seat when we're in times of plenty and peace. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. It's just, it's just amazing. And, and God, yet again, in, in this cycle, hears their cries for mercy. And he sends deliverance. And this time, he sends deliverance in a way that probably more than any other cycle in the judges, in a way that just underscores that it really is him and not them because he sends deliverance through the most culturally, societally, at that time, unusual people. He uses two women. And you might say, so what? Well, you, you're not living in that culture. That's a, that's a patriarchal culture more than ours. And for a woman to save all Israel... Through her leadership is unique. There's two women 
I want to introduce you to them because they are incredible heroes in the Bible. The first is a woman named Deborah. And as chapter 4 opens, Deborah has already become very well known in Israel. Deborah has the reputation of being very wise. She is one of the judges. You remember the judges were kind of like warlords. They, they were tribal leaders that, that God's spirit raised up to be able to provide leadership, deliverance, and to adjudicate. So they kind of have like a, they're like a prime minister of a, pro, a province. But God would raise up one of these tribal leaders to be that person to save all Israel and lead in the saving of all Israel through these cycles that just led to such pain for God's people. And she, she sat under, we read, the palms of Deborah. So there's like a place in Israel that is named after her because she was the person that judged Israel from there. And she adjudicated cases for Israel. That's what happened when, what's happening when the story opens. She already commands respect from the people. They literally would go up, like in the hill country, go up to her to get uh, decisions from her as she judged Israel. And look, at a time when Israel was largely leaderless, Deborah becomes a very important figure. And it is Deborah, this great woman of faith, and not anybody else, that God speaks to about Jabin and Sisera And God gives the plan for battle to defeat this far superior army that's oppressing his people. God gives the plan of battle to Deborah. And she believes that with God they can defeat Jabin, they can defeat Sisera the general and the 900 chariots. So she calls, well we say like Barak, like a Barack Obama, but it's supposed to be biblically Barak. So she calls Barak. She kind of lives closer to Jerusalem, and Barak's way up here in the north. And Barak had to kind of risk his life to come down and meet with Deborah, who summoned the general Barak. That tells you something about Deborah right there. And so, and so Barak uh, comes to meet with her, and she reveals the God-given plan for victory. And Deborah calls for action, but four-star general Barak just isn't quite there. He believes that Deborah has heard from God. He believes that Deborah is incredibly wise. And just as uh, in different places in the Bible that people didn't want to go to battle without a prophet, he says to her, I'll go, but I'll only go and do this under one condition, that you, that you go with me. So this, this man named Sisera is, is kind of Barak's, the, uh, the, the, the opposing general against Barak's forces. Let me tell you what Sisera is known for. Sisera is known for ruthlessness. I want you to think about some of the things that happen in the Middle East and, and even sometimes in Africa where people will just go through and just cut everybody's heads off and do incredible atrocities. I mean, we kind of see that on the news you know, in different places in the world. And you're like, you know, why can't you just defeat somebody? Why do you got to cut? Why do you got to do all that? Because I like to. Because I want to instill utter fear into the people to, 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 to basically send a message. You don't mess with me. You don't rise up against me. This is what he was known for. 
He was incredibly brutal. In Judges 5, 8, Deborah writes in her song, What shield or spear to, uh, was, excuse me, was shield or spear even to be seen among 40,000 Israelite troops? The answer is no. Like, they're not equipped for battle. Not everybody even has a spear. Listen, listen to what she says. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. And so we've got farmers versus superpower. This is scary. Barak, Barak believes that um, the Deborah is hearing from the Lord. He says, I, I'll go if, if you go with me. And she says, you know, if I go with you, I'm going to make a prophecy here that when the battle's over, the person who's going to finish this battle is going to be a woman and not and we're going to, that's the second woman we're going to hear about in a moment. And so she, she goes up uh, with him. And so Barak, along with Deborah, along with her, they muster 10,000 troops, as God has said, and they take them to Mount Tabor. Now, the, 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 the valley, uh, this is way up north in Israel, Mount Tabor. Uh, the valley is really flat, and there's a river called the Kishon River that flows through this valley. And so they go up, they go up on this mountain, 10,000 people on the mountain. And um, this is a terrible military move. This is terrible. Do you know why it's terrible? Because the valley is very flat where the river is, and this is the dry season. So... Other than like rugged places where the chariots would have to inch their way along, the 900 chariots, those chariots, can you see like the Cecil B. DeMille, you know, Moses movie, those chariots coming toward the Red Sea, just, just flying across that, that flat. That's, that's what it was going to be. And, the, and 900 chariots and all these people just surround the mountain and they win. I mean, like game over. Except for one thing, in the middle of the dry season, the chariots begin to race across the valley next to the river and God lets loose a thunderstorm to beat all thunderstorms and they are just bogged down. Those chariots are stuck way deep in the mud and neutralized. And it is right then when Deborah says, go now, now. Like, you know, like you're just waiting for the right moment to kind of spring the trout. God has done his part. Now, she screams, go! And Barak charges down the side of that mountain with 10,000 troops. And those people are all slogging in the mud and confused. And this smaller, vastly under-equipped army utterly routes the Canaanites. The superpower, because superpower versus God is not a good match for the superpower. So what we learn from this, kind of the, who's the real hero of this story? It's not Deborah, it's not Barak, or this other lady, it's God. Because it's God's plan, it's God's reign, it is, it is God's 
ability to neutralize. He could have done it any way he wanted to do it. And this is the way he did it. And, and just as we kept reading, as you kept reading, keep reading in the book of Joshua, and the Lord gave the enemies, the superior enemies, into the hands of Israel. And he, he did it that, that day as well. So it is God. Meanwhile, Sisera escapes. He has to get out of his chariot because it is no longer functional. He escapes on foot. He is running as fast as he can from that battlefield because he, he knows what they're going to do to him. You know why? Because they don't want him to escape and go find his way back to his people and regroup and bring an even larger army next time to destroy the Israelites. So they got to get him because he's the man. So he is running from that battle. He is sneaking around. And what amazing luck. (laughs) He comes to this Bedouin encampment. You know, the Bedouins, they, they move around. They're shepherds. They're still out there today. And there are these tents. And you know what he discovers? He discovers that the Bedouins are the, are, are the are Kenites. And we read this, this little sentence right before the battle that says they had, those people had made a treaty with Jabin. So there was neutrality. They weren't against him. And so he thought, I'm safe. I'm safe. Not... Not because these Bedouins were descendants of another Kenite named Jesse. I guess gave the wrong name. Moses' dad. My brain's just going. Named who? Sorry. My brain just left. Um, Anyway, Moses' father-in-law. Thank you. (laughs) These Bedouins have heard all about. They believe in Yahweh. Jethro, thank you. Jethro. These Bedouins have heard all about what Sisera has been doing to the people who believe in the same God that they believe into, in. And, and one of the housewives comes out of her tent and she goes out and meets Sisera and she says, you can hide in my tent. <laughs> Don't go in there, man. You can rest in my tent. Her name is J.L. And J.L. is the second woman in this text that God is going to use. Uh, Now, J.L. had heard all about the rapes. And basically it says, verse 30 in in Judges 5, two, two per, it basically says two per soldier. She'd heard all about the rapes. She'd heard all about the the starvation, she heard all about the, the oppression. And, uh, and so she invites the, 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 the head rapist into her tent. And she brings him some food and she brings him some drink. And he says, just hide me under these carpets. I'm going to get some sleep. And as soon as uh, he goes to sleep, she takes a tent peg because women set up the tents and a hammer and puts that tent peg right through his head and pins his head to the ground dead. Whoa! Look, this is the most powerful general in Canaan who she does not want to escape and regroup and come back with with more. 
And uh, you might think, that's just cold-blooded murder. Don't see her that way. See her as a combatant. See her as yet another soldier on the field. The difference between jail and the soldiers is she didn't have a sword. She didn't have a javelin. She had a tent peg and a mallet. And the most powerful general in all of Canaan was done away by a stay-at-home mom from Israel. Amazing. And when Barak, Barak and, and, and his troops finally kind of get to that Bedouin village, he says, come in and you'll, you'll find the guy you're looking for. And I think they probably assumed he was alive in there and not so. And there's the dead general. And this is where you can say for certain all Israel is saved. And we move, as you read, into these years and years of peace yet again for the Israelites. Whole next chapter. Chapter 5 is nothing but a song, kind of like a psalm, a song that Deborah wrote and Deborah sings uh, uh, to commemorate the victory of God over his enemies. And so many of our details about what was going on and the battle itself come, like like many little, little details, come from Deborah's song. So, here, the Lord used who he wanted to use to bring about victory. He didn't say to Israel, go find the, the guy that, that can do this, you know, that has the skill and has the faith. He didn't say that. He came to this prophetess named Deborah, and Deborah summoned Barak, and Deborah gave the plan to Barak, and they went up and and then he, he utilized the stay-at-home mom to, to finish off the battle and, and be the person that would be memorialized as concluding this battle for, for, Israel, for Israel. And it underscores that, that God still uses who he wants to. You know what? If you, if you love the Lord and you follow him and you follow his word, who knows how God could use you in, in people's lives? This was so far beyond what anybody thought would happen. You know, one day, maybe when we're rocking in a rocking chair somewhere and we, we're too old and can't walk, you know, maybe one day we'll have some things to talk about and maybe they just weren't our favorite car. Maybe they just weren't the, the time when we won an SEC championship with our football. Maybe it's not our deer camp. Maybe it's not our best day of golf. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's how God used us in some lives and how we got to be a part of something eternal, something kingdom, something that counts far beyond. And what a privilege. This passage shows that God just uses people who love him and follow him. Now, I think we need to take a time out here and discuss something that people try to push down onto this text. This text uh, is not about whether women can be leaders. They can and they are in the scriptures and in society today and society between that time and now, um, or whether they could even be leaders of a nation. Deborah is a judge Margaret Thatcher was the prime minister, and, and, and Theresa May is the prime minister. Now, one day we may have 
a woman president. I don't know anybody, well, excuse me, I know very few people and reform people that believe that somehow the civil sphere is off limits to women. That's just not what people that read the scriptures believe. Yes, women are probably make better ACT scores generally than men, I would imagine. Uh, and they can serve in business, and they can serve in government, and they can serve in, in, in all kinds of places, in, on the bench. Um, that's not the problem that most people have with this text. It's, that's not what they're trying to push down on the text. Um, it's how people use this passage to suggest that this passage teaches that women should be ordained as elders in the church. You should have women elders. Look, see, Deborah was a judge. That, that whole issue doesn't have anything to do with Deborah being a judge. The judge was the civil leader. That issue has to do with Deborah being a prophetess. You see the difference? She was a prophetess who was also a judge. Hey, no problem with women in the Bible being prophetesses either. Miriam, the sister of Moses, if you know the Bible, was a prophetess. Huldah was a prophetess. Isaiah's wife was a prophetess. Deborah was a prophetess. In the New Testament, remember when, when Mary and Joseph brought the baby Jesus uh, for the, uh, the, the ceremony at the temple and a guy named Simeon kind of intercepted them and we have that now you can let your servant depart in peace. Do you know who was right behind Simeon? A lady named Anna, the prophetess. So let's just don't make stuff up that's, n- that's not in, in the text. I mean, there shouldn't be a problem with that. But here is the main point, that being a prophetess did not mean that she was the equivalent to a modern-day ordained elder. How do I know that? Because I know about prophets, and I know about priests. The equivalent in the Old Testament to an ordained elder today would be a priest, not a prophet. And let me tell you why, and it's very important. It was the purpose of what prophets were sent by God to do. Prophets were sent intentionally outside of the system. They weren't a part of the ordination. They weren't a part of this priesthood, which, by the way, commanded 100% to be male in the Old Testament, and also in the New Testament for elders, which would be an equivalent of of priests. And so nobody is saying women aren't smart as men, and they can be prime ministers, they can be presidents, but when it comes to Israel, when it comes to God's house, God requires a kind of male leadership, a stepping up, and a faithfulness to his word to provide leadership. The important thing is, is that the prophets operated from the outside specifically because they were, they were placed by God to speak to power. They weren't a part of this system like ordination. They were called by God and they spoke to the, remember that's why they got killed. Hey, you priests, they said, you ordained guys. Hey, you know what? You don't love the Lord, and you're not leading. You're no longer leading with the Scripture, and God hates your worship services. God hates your new moon festivals. God hates your feasts. That's what he said in the book of Amos, through Amos the prophet, outside of the system. 
Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the priests. Nope. Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets. She is just one more person that God brought his word to that spoke to power, literally summoned Barak and said, I have a message from God from from you, and it's about how we're going to defeat Sisera, and gave him the battle plan. And notice that she didn't want to lead God's troops. In fact, she wanted him to go without her. There is nothing in Deborah that's trying to usurp any other role uh, in Israel. In fact, she says, okay, because he says, I won't go without you. And, and she says, okay, but you know, I'm just going to tell you now that if I go along, the, the kind of the glory to this thing is going to go to a woman and, and not to you, you know, as the, as the leader, like the Eisenhower, the, the leader of, of this big, big thing. So we thank the Lord for Deborah, who was one of the wisest people in Israel, who was a judge in Israel, and Deborah, who was a prophetess, whom God spoke to and threw to Barak in the greatest moment of Israel's need after 20 years of oppression. So let's wrap this up. In the big picture, this story and every one of the stories in each of the cycles in the book of Judges reminds us that we need a deliverer. It's painfully obvious that they, they need a deliverer, right? There's 15 of these cycles. There is a kind of yearning that, that for a true deliverer running underneath this entire book. It's like a San Andreas fault almost running underneath. There's this deep yearning for something to happen and for a true deliverer to emerge to like bring real peace, real rest, real organization of God's people to live forward in the land. And so, you know, that famous verse, the one that keeps getting repeated in Judges, in those days, Israel had no king. They just had these warlords that would have to be deliverers. In those days, Israel had no king And because there was not this unity and this long-term unity and enforcement and everyone did what was right in his own eyes, we need a deliverer, but we need a deliverer who's a king. That's the heart cry of judges. It's the heart cry of every person created by God in this room. Because, you know, even when the kings came, (laughs) started off with Saul. That's not a great start. But then we got the Messianic king, David, who committed adultery and murdered somebody. I mean, even when the kings came, that longing, it turns out, really wasn't just for a king like all the other nations, right? It was for a real king, a Messianic king, who will bring peace and joy to God's people basically forever. It's a yearning for the king of kings. And the Lord of Lords is the yearning for Christ. You know, and Christ appears later, obviously, after the judges. But, but Christ comes and Christ doesn't take on the Romans. What does Christ take on? Christ takes on our two greatest enemies. What is that? Sin that keeps us from God and death and hell. Sin and death. And how does King Jesus 
our deliverer, our savior, our Messiah do that. He takes our sins upon himself as that final lamb of God, pictured in all those sacrifices of the Old Testament. He becomes the once and for all lamb of God. And right there on the cross, he defeats our sin and removes our sin from us. Three days later, he rose from the dead. He defeated death and he lives, y'all, to give eternal life, resurrection life to all who come to him and are able to receive the full payment for sins that he has accomplished. And all who come to him, he is able to give eternal and abundant life like because he is the one and he reigns right now. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him and he reigns at the right hand of the Father. So today we ask, how much do we need him? How much do you need God in your life? And just maybe the book of Judges is a warning to us to keep needing him and not just drive our own lives without him. And it's not just what happens to us. It's what happens to the people around us. We just live a me-centered, selfish life like, like, you know, my life is a movie and everybody else has little bit parts. I'm the star of my movie. No, God is the author and the star of history. And Christ is the fulcrum of history that brings everything that was longed for. So maybe the book of Judges is a warning to us to not reject him for false gods that we really struggle with. And, and to know that he still loves us and will bring us back every time. See, that was that, remember that other question? Why does he stick with us? He's promised. He sent his son. He, he loves us. And so, you know, maybe there's somebody here today that says, well, I'm just not sure God still loves me. Yeah, he does. And anybody that turns to him will just be embraced by him. Maybe that's what we learn. That these people that for 20 years and were oppressed because they utterly turned from God, God took them back. Or maybe we can see how God uses ordinary people. Or maybe we can see that the real king has come. And we can love him, know him, and follow him. And y'all, I'm not just talking about your personal life here. Maybe we could apply this that he is Lord over history. And we can follow him knowing that it's not just about our salvation. It's about his church and his kingdom that cannot be stopped. We get to be a part of that. And maybe that's one of the things the Lord wants to bring us back into the middle of with joy. Let's pray together. Lord, help us to see these things. You amaze us with your grace. We praise you, God of Abraham, God who through Abraham's seed is our Savior, our King, our life giver, and our Lord. If you've never put your trust in what Christ has done for us on the cross and you'd like to, you see you can't do this on your own, you need him, pray with me, Lord, I I see it and I want to turn away from just me trying to be religious and be acceptable to you. I want to try to turn away from me doing it all. And I want to turn to what you've done on the cross and simply receive everything that you've done for me and receive you. 
Lord, there are many of us that just need this reminder to, to stay, uh, to keep in step with the Spirit. And Lord, to, to know that we need you today and that you'll lead us today. Lord, there are some that, that need to hear, I'll take you back. If that's where you are, just, just believe in the gospel. Believe in grace and, and repent. Just say, Lord, I, I want to turn from these things. You're going to have to help me turn away from them. And so I want to confess my sins and turn to you that my sins might be wiped out in times of refreshment might come from you. And then, Lord, would you put within our hearts a vision for your kingship and your kingdom that we get a part in. And we pray these things even as we sing together about the God of Abraham. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.